So a bit of a recap, uh, Abraham. God speaks after years and years of centuries of silence to this man, Abraham. He's suddenly confronted with the God who had made the world, who had seen the world, reject him, rebel against him, turn away from him. And he sees in that world hatred towards the God who had created it and destroys the world and speaks to one family alone, the family of Noah, and preserves a constant stream of his blessing in the world. And then there is silence until God speaks once again to Abraham. For us today, that is significant. What God is seeking for us to do as we read these early parts of the Bible is to help us to understand that right at the very beginning, the problem with the human race is displayed in God's Word. Rebellion against God is the problem of this world. That's the key issue. That's what we all face. It's what we face in the world at large, and it's what we face deep within ourselves. Rebellion against God. Now, if we are rebels against God, and God loves this world, how is God going to resolve that issue? The dilemma of our rebellion and His desire for the world that He loves. The whole of the message of the Bible is about God placing golden footsteps through history, explaining to us how He is re-engaging, how He is redisplaying Himself, revealing Himself to people so that He might redeem a people for Himself, which is what we see at the end of the Bible. That is what it's all about. That is why this story about this man and God speaking to him in ancient times is relevant to us today because it's saying to us, God intervened back there. Now, the previous chapter, if, if you were able to be here, if you weren't able to be here, all of the talks that we, we uh, have on a Sunday are all downloadable uh, from our website, so you can always catch up. Last chapter that we looked at held one of the most important verses in explaining Abraham. It said this in chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to it to him as righteousness. That is a remarkable statement. It's saying that the foundation of our relationship with God is not about what we do, it's about how we trust Him. Do we believe Him? It's not about us being uh, in that situation saying, look, this is what I'm like, God, and and, uh, if I do all of these things, stack them all up, will you accept me? It's about us being confronted with what God says and saying, do you believe it? And Abraham believed what God had said to him. And God said, because you believe what I have said to you, I will count you as righteous. In other words, because you believe me, I will consider you, even though you are not inherently good, I will consider you to be good, accepted. That's a remarkable statement. And yet what we see in the very next chapter Chapter 16 is something which we've just read a couple of minutes ago. Chapter 16, we have something which, quite honestly, it really would not look look out of place on a Jeremy Kyle show, would it? I mean, the life of Abraham, Sarai, and Hagar is just a mess. It's just a crisis. Here we have this situation. We've got three you know, in true Jeremy Kyle style, we're going to invite each one of them onto the, onto the platform and introduce them one by one. We're going to look at each of them. We're going to see Sarai, the dis, 
the doubting woman, the doubting wife. We're going to see Hagar, the abused slave. We're going to see Abraham, the spineless man. There's three people. Abraham, the spineless man, the one in the previous chapter who had said he believed God. What a transformation. What a crisis is going on here. So here we have this mess, just to kind of capture it quickly. God has said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, he's an old guy by now, and his wife is old. And he said, I'm going to make you a great nation because your wife, Sarai, is going to bear a child. There's my promise. And and he said, I believe you. I believe that's what you're going to do. And then the very next chapter, Sarai turns around to him and he says, at the beginning of chapter 16, it says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So it continues to go on. The, the problem continues to be there. Even though he believed what God had said, it seems like years and years and years of God saying and God saying and God saying and God saying, it's just not happening. And for Sarai, it's just, this, it, this just isn't going to happen. So I'm going to take it into my own hands. I'm going to create the environment for it to happen. I'm going to make what is required work. And the way I'm going to do it is by giving my husband, my slave girl, as a mistress stroke wife so that he will have sex with her, she will have a child, and that child will become my child. And because I own her, I will own him. That for us today is just, well, actually, it's, we, we, we do it in incredibly kind of cultured way and in a very chemically kind of uh, acceptable way and with all sorts of registrations and all the rest of it. But this is, if you like, this is ancient world surrogacy, isn't it? We do it in all sorts of different ways. But the same issue is there in our culture today as it was in their culture then. This is ancient world surrogacy. I own you. You are meaningless to me as a person, as an individual, as a person with emotions and experiences. I own you. I'm going to use you to be the furtherance of my plan. And I am going to deliver what I believe God can't deliver. That's what Sarai says. So she gives Abram her slave girl. Now it says in verse uh, verse, um, 3, so after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai has so this has been going on for quite some time. Uh, been living in Canaan for ten years. Sarai's wife took her Egyptian Hagar, slave Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. Apparently, our English translations are, they protect us, really, from the brutality of what we actually see written down in the original Hebrew. What Sarai actually says when she gave her to her husband, she effectively says, I put her between your legs. 
That is effectively what she's saying. She's saying, I, I have, I'm just using this slave girl. She is a womb to me. Now, that, that, that might shock you. Well, actually, it, it really should shock you. Firstly, in terms of what's going on. Secondly, this is in the Bible, isn't it? This is one of the champions and heroes of the ancient world who is living like this and behaving like this. What, what is going on? This is Sarai who's basically saying, right, just get on with it. You know, the reality is, I think it was Samuel Johnson or it's been accredited to him, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I have all sorts of great ideas of how to create my hopes, my dreams, my plans. Good intentions, but rebellion against God. That's at the root of Sarai's problem. And that is at the root of all of our problems. I do not believe God. You know, when it says in chapter 15, Abraham believed God, this is effectively saying Sarai didn't believe God. Now, I would suggest to you that the way that we can take this little experience of this woman is rather than standing up over here on this uh, high moral platform and looking down on Sarai and condemning, is rather saying, actually, every one of us have a root of that kind of behavior within us. Every one of us has the opportunity to look at the lives that we're living and to say, God hasn't got it right. Therefore, I'm going to take it into my hands. I'm going to deliver it. I'm going to do the things that I know need to be done for life to be right according to the way I see life as being right. And that's our issue. That is what is written into our DNA, if you like. Our, our moral DNA is marked with that rebellious tendency. So rather than looking at Sarai and saying, oh, what a terrible thing, maybe we ought to say, use Sarai as a bit of a mirror and say, do I have a tendency to do that? Do I have a tendency to look at that kind of uh, behavior in me and say, yeah, I can see where I decide, what I want, even though I know it is not what God wants, even I, though I know it is not the way that God has designed for me to live, even though I know that it is not the way that I should be living, and yet I am determined to do it this way because I will deliver for me the success that I want in my life. Relationships. <laughs> Relationships. I, I mean, probably one of the areas where we will most, more than ever, more than in any other situation. We will do exactly what Sarai says. This relationship is not working out the way I want it or there is no relationship or whatever it might be and we will say, God has got it wrong and I will deliver it in the way that I see it. What happens? Well, the outcome, as we read in verse 6 of chapter 16, is this that when it all comes round and she ends up pregnant is that Sarai despises her. She despises her. She hates her. Actually, because of the response in Hagar, which we're going to see in a minute. 
But it's not as though having constructed this surrogate, which was, after all, culturally acceptable for the day, it wasn't as though after delivering this that she's now saying, oh, I'm really happy. It's all going to work out. Oh, man, I tell you what, the number of times where we decide I'm going to do it this way, and then when we get there, we realize it's not the, the kind of panacea that we'd hoped it always would be. And we end up in even more of a spiral of crisis, even more of a spiral of tension, even more of a spiral of despair and frustration. Because that's where we put ourselves. And that's where Sarai put herself. As she decided to construct the pathway that she did not believe God would construct for her. She had good intentions. But the road was heading in the wrong direction. Verse 6, we read that... Then, verse 5, sorry, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises. May may the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar. What that actually means is that she beat her. She beat her. She physically attacked her. I I mean, you don't just physically attack somebody and the rest of the time you are emotionally uh, giving to them, do you? Actually, this was an environment now where Hagar finds herself where she is being emotionally and physically abused because she has done, she has ended up pregnant in exactly the way that the situation had been constructed for her. Wow. So that's Sarah the doubting wife. What about Hagar, the used slave? (laughs) It's just a little story, isn't it? But it is filled with the reality of human experience. Painful human experience. Hurtful, desperate, life-shattering human experience. She is being given to Sarai in Egypt as a slave girl. And then she gets given by her mistress to her mistress's husband to be an object to produce children so that he will have sex with her. That is a loving relationship, is it? Oh, do you think so? Do you think Sarai passed Hagar on to Abram? And Hagar looked into Abram's eyes and was filled with love for Abram as he had sex with her? Or do you think the reality was that her eyes were filled with tears as this woman is abused? There's the reality. There's the reality, the gritty reality of the Bible here. She ends up pregnant. She runs away. (laughs) She just can't take it. She runs away. She comes back. And then she gets sent away. Second reading that we had. She gets sent away. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian, 
Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking the child that she now had, Isaac. And so she turns to Abraham and she says, this, this can't go on. She's got to go. She's got to, just, she's got to go. Get rid of her. Now, Abraham's changed at this point. <laughs> and uh, we're going to have a look at Abraham in a minute. And he agrees, finally, for her to go. And then we have this heartbreaking experience of this woman out in the desert. She's, she, picture it, she's given a bag of food, she's given a skin of water, she's sent off into the desert. You, a boy and a mother walking out into the desert. She is so desperate when the water runs out. She sees her son dying in front of her eyes. She puts him under a bush and she distances herself far away, far enough away so that she cannot hear him cry himself to death. She can't bear it. And then she sobs. So she's, she runs away and then she's sent away. What a tragedy it seems. So there's the used slave, Abram the spineless man. So Abraham is this man who God has spoken to. God has spoken to him. He's had the intervention of the living God who has said, your wife will have a child and I believe it. He's had the experience, as we read in chapter 15, of God revealing himself in this dramatic overpowering, incredible way where God makes a promise to him, a covenant promise. He has all of those experiences. And then we find that Abraham is in that situation where he just says, oh, just this wife, she's just going on and on about this child. She doesn't believe it. Yeah, what are we going to do? Yeah, what are we going to do? Guys, this is a picture of the consistent problem of failing to be the security, the spiritual support, the care, and the concern that we see exploding through Scripture continuously. He just says, okay, what are we going to do? I'll go with whatever you say. I'll go with whatever you say. I'll not live out what I believe. That's the problem. I'll not live it out. I'll not stand up and be counted and say to you, as the woman that I love, now listen, listen, God has said it. We've got to believe it. We've got to hold on to this. I am going to stand in the breach. I am going to be your strength. I am going to be your protection. I am going to be your comfort as we work through this crisis that doesn't seem to be working out. That's what he should have done. And he doesn't. He doesn't stand up. He doesn't take the spiritual battering. He doesn't stand as the barrier against the conflict that they face. He says, what are we going to do? What do you want to do? I'll have your slave girl. Yeah, okay, fair enough. That'll do. Come on. It sounds remarkably like what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Remarkably like what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Where Eve says, I don't believe God. I don't believe that what God said was right. I've been spoken to uh, by this serpent. And, and I don't believe that that's the case. I don't believe that that will really be the way it works out. God doesn't really want us 
to know the reality and the truth. And then she says to Adam, have this fruit. Have this fruit. (laughs) And Adam does not stand at that moment in time and say, stop, we've got to believe God. Exactly the same problem recurring here. Abraham is spineless. Three people lined up on the couch as the show goes on. (laughs) The great thing is, there is a fourth character in the story. And the fourth character appears twice. First occurrence is where he speaks to Hagar who's run away. It's remarkable. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? The angel said of the Lord, told her, go back to your mistress, submit to her. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. I think that is remarkable. That is just such amazing astounding, incredible grace. A slave girl. And no mark as far as the storyline of the Bible would suggest us to think. And yet the angel of the Lord speaks to her. God intervenes for the oppressed, for the broken, for the abused. For the one who is disregarded and hated and despised. For the one who has been taken out of her country, placed in this situation which seems completely impossible and then used in a devastating, humiliating way. And then, cast, and then she's so badly treated, she has to run away. And she is in the desert, in reality, about to die. And God intervenes and speaks to her. What does that say about our God? What does that say about the God that the Bible is describing here? Whenever we come to sections like this, it's very often it's tempting for us to say, oh, God condones terrible behavior. Here's Abraham, he does this to this slave girl and he sends her out and all the rest of it. And we say, that's just, a, just awful. And we, we measure the Bible without stopping and thinking and considering, is that how God behaves? Or does God actually intervene in the life of this broken, shattered slave girl and take her in his hands and care for her and protect her and support her and make her a promise which he's made to Abraham? I'm going to make your son a great nation. You're going to call him Ishmael. Oh, wow. What is God like? What is God like for the ones who are broken and despised and hated? Is he a God who who cares? Is God, according to the Bible, a God who cares? Yes, this says. A God who cares. A God who intervenes. A God who is worried, in human terms, for the broken and for the shattered. He has a heart and a compassion for this young woman, who in society terms is an irrelevance. Yet God speaks to her. And he says, now go back. 
submit to your mistress. Stick it out because in that situation, at least, you're going to be fl- uh, clothed, you're going to be fed, your child is going to be able to be born and is going to be able to live. Just go and effectively what he's saying, just go and use them. <laughs> go and use them. They've used you. Now you go and use them because I'll have my hand on you. I'll protect you. You go and use them for what you need at this point in time. Don't you worry about the future. I'll provide for you. I'll make you into a great, now your son into a great nation. Now go back. Don't be scared to go back. And so she does. The second time that the angel of the Lord appears in this story is when remarkably, and we're going to get our heads around this in a minute, she's now, rather than running away, she's sent away. By Abraham, Abraham by this point. Isaac has been born. The promise has come. uh, And now she gets sent away because her son Ishmael despises this young child who's just been weaned. So we've got this toddler. You've got this situation, haven't you? I mean, talk about a chaotic family. We've now got wife number one with a little baby. Wife number two who's not quite, probably a wife in legal terms, but isn't loved by Abraham. The only reason he's concerned, we read in chapter 1, is not because of Hagar, he's bothered about his son when Sarai says, send him away. He's not bothered about the woman, he's bothered about his son. So there's no affection. Uh, And now this young boy, younger boy, probably, I don't know, a number of years old, who's got the wherewithal to despise this little toddler who's now been weaned and therefore is crawling around and all the rest of it. Abraham throws a great feast because he's now been weaned and send him away. And this time, this time God speaks to Abraham and says, don't worry about what your wife is wanting to have done. Don't worry, send her away. So he did. Once again, food, water, into the desert. Only this time it really reaches crisis point. Ishmael is about to die. The mother, Hagar, is sobbing. I, I, I think it, one verse, just stop and think. Maybe as the desert winds just caught the sounds of Ishmael's cries, Hagar would occasionally hear the tears from the boy who is dying under the bush as she helplessly sobs. Where is God now? Well, here is where he is. Because the angel of God appears once again by voice. And he says, that promise that I made way back then, Hagar, that promise that I made back then, I'm now going to deliver against. Don't you worry. In fact, I am reach, I've allowed it to reach the point where you know without a shadow of a doubt that it is me that is delivering and not you. She opened her eyes and there's a well of water She's able to rehydrate 
herself and her child. They carry on living in the desert. God provides for them and he grows up into a man exactly how God had promised. Wow, the angel of the Lord. A picture, a kind of a preparation, a little insight, a preview, if you like, of just what God is like appearing there. God appeared to her first time. God appeared to her. Who might that be? Might it be Jesus? Prepared, preparing, appearing to her, and intervening in her life at that moment in time as she needs to. Because the fourth character in this story is the crux of it. The fourth character, the angel of the Lord, the intervention of God, is the hope. Now, where does this take us? Where does it take us? Why is it that on one occasion, the angel of the Lord says, go back, and on the next occasion, he says, send her out into the desert. Just get rid of her. (laughs) Okay, let's now take her way into the future. A few thousand years. Paul explains it. We're going to really quickly explain this, very, very quickly. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19 to 24, Paul says this. Now, you need to understand, he says, there's two women. They both have a child. One child is born by the intervention, effectively, of human activity according to the law he describes it as, according to what they did. That's Hagar and Ishmael. Now, we said, didn't we, that's what, exactly what Sarai did. She took it into her own hands and she ma- manipulated. She did what she thought she needed to do to do what God demanded, which was to create a nation. That's us doing it. Now, <laughs> there's another one over here, Sarah or Sarah. She bears a child called Isaac. That child is different. That child is a child who is born not according to the intervention of men and women, but according to the promise of God. That's what happens. There's one child that's born according to their intervention. There's one child that is born according to promise. And it works like this. When the promise is revealed, there's no longer any need for our intervention. In fact, our intervention, our planning, our construction, Paul calls it the law, if you like, the way of us living in a way which becomes acceptable to God no longer has any bearing because the promise has arrived. The hope has arrived. For for Abraham and for Sarah, that hope arrived when Isaac was born. Exactly what God had promised. Exactly what God had said was going to happen. He's born, and now the promise has been revealed. Now, where does that take us? 
It tells us that God is a God of promise and God is delivering promises right the way through his storyline. Ultimately, where the promise that is revealed slightly through this angel of the Lord becomes totally clear in the promise that is Jesus. And suddenly, all of the necessity for us to live in a way which proves that we are acceptable before God, according to the law, disappears because the promise has arrived and His name is Jesus. A promise which means that you and I, you and I can carry on living with a hope that is not dependent on us delivering, but is a hope absolutely dependent on his success, the promise. It kind of works like this, that rather than looking on, and I've often wondered why is it, I don't know how many of us actually spend morning TV watching Jeremy Kyle, wouldn't say it's the first channel that I flick on, why is it in our world that we find something like that? How, how does it gain traction? Why do we find it interesting? I think at least it's because it's a little bit of a reflection of what's going on in lots and lots and lots and lots of lives, but below the surface, hidden away. The chaos and the drama and the crisis and the mess and the turmoil and the sense of guilt and the being able to point the finger and being able to see that there is guilt within, all of that is just spread out on our screen. And it does two things. It makes us realize perhaps that I am like lots of other people because I've got mess in my life. And then we kind of get self-righteous and we say, but I'm not that bad, am I? <laughs> I'm not that bad, whatever it might be. The reality is, if we look at this story and we try to say, Abraham wasn't that bad, we strip God of his grace. We strip God of his grace because Abraham was that bad. He did abdicate his spiritual responsibility. He did mess up. He did behave in a way which was unacceptable. He did take a slave girl and try through his wife's scheming and planning to intervene where God had promised that he would intervene in a different way. He did rebel. He did. That's great news in a way. Because it says for us who have rebelled, God is a God who continues to come back, continues to intervene, to continues to pursue and to stay with and to stick with and to not let go of those who continue to mess up. The Jeremy Kyles in this room, or the, at least the appearances on the show of all of us who could say in different ways, I could be there. I could be there because I know the mess inside. And God still pursues me in Jesus. And His grace is sufficient that even though there is that mess, it doesn't stop Him from pursuing me. 
It doesn't stop him from encouraging me and loving me and supporting me and intervening me for me, whether I'm the one who is like Abraham, guilty, who he continues to pursue and continues to deliver promises for, even though he has rebelled, or if I am the victim like Hagar, whether I am the culpable one or whether I am the victim, God will pursue because he is a God of astounding grace. That's what God is like, revealed here, made clear when the angel of the Lord finally becomes visible to all in Jesus. I think that's great news because messed up lives can find hope. There is no crisis that is too big for God. There is no skeleton in the closet which is too offensive for the God of the Bible. You know why? Because he knows what's already in there. He knows what's there. You think it's hidden? I think it's hidden. I think it's hidden from everybody. God knows. He's already been into the closet and seen it. And yet he continues to pursue those who say, I just need you. What did Hagar need? She needed water. (laughs) There's another occasion where Jesus says to another woman, listen, I can give you water. I can give you the most astounding, incredible water, like water you've never had before. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, he said to the woman as he pointed to the well that they were right next to. You drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. (laughs) Never thirst. It's a spiritual water. Because there was two contrasts there. There can be physical thirst and spiritual thirst. And this woman was desperately thirsty physically, but she was also desperately thirsty spiritually. And God delivered both. And God will deliver spiritual water to those who come to the fountain and drink.